We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. A federal court has ruled the Prime Minister's use of the Emergency Act was unconstitutional. By the way, so was my parents' reaction to my untidy bedroom. Here's Scott Thompson! It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, a jam-packed day coming up and uh, lots going on uh, politically, certainly. And uh, the Liberal Caucus is uh, holding its retreat in Ottawa. Now, I know you said, well, didn't you talk about that yesterday? Well, that was the high-ups. That's the top brass. They had their uh, big powwow the other day. And um, top brass, the prime minister, that sort of thing, they met in Montreal. The Liberal Caucus, the rest of them, uh, meet at a retreat in Ottawa. And uh, the PM uh, addresses the caucus, you know, Similar stuff, uh, same old repeats of what we're hearing in attacks on Pierre Polyevra and such, and, um, and, and, you know, using his angry voice, uh, saying that Pierre Polyevra was voting against kitchen table issues, which, my goodness, uh, I think that is what has, uh, given him the success that he has, uh, in the polls. Uh, and there you go. So that's, uh, and, and talking about the Liberal caucus and, and the retreat and, and, a Donald Trump presidency. They're getting you ready for a Donald Trump presidency. And uh, I'm not sure how you prepare for a Donald Trump presidency other than being a really great Canada. <laughs> you know, just look after your own books. And, and you know, so really, are they really meeting to talk about strategies if Donald Trump wins or is really what they're doing is uh, uh, figuring out a way to use Donald Trump's uh, campaign and whatever he's doing to advance them in the polls, comparing uh, uh, the conservatives to Donald Trump and such. So, yeah, is it about us and saving us from Donald Trump, or is it about uh, them using Donald Trump to their advantage? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but anyway, uh, here's a, uh, a clip from John Kennedy at CP and kind of sums up what is going on. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is also sure to hear more complaints from his caucus as the Liberals continue to trail Conservatives by a significant margin in the polls. The Liberal caucus meeting comes after the federal cabinet held a retreat in Montreal to plan out the next few months of government priorities and includes preparing a possibility of Donald Trump gaining presidency in the United States and attempting to slow the influx of foreign students putting pressure on Canada's housing supply. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. All right. Now, with that being said, as I mentioned, the Liberal Caucus gathering in Ottawa, coming up with strategies for the House of Commons sitting. It starts on Monday, uh, trailing these uh, conservatives by a significant margin in the polls and addressing the caucus this afternoon. The prime minister admitted there are a lot of differing opinions within the party. A variety of topics, but that's not a bad thing. I don't think that's really what anybody's talking about. <laughs> Here's what he had to say in his angry voice to fire everyone up. And it is really, really important. And indeed, it's a great strength of this party that here in this room, we can have deep and serious and difficult conversations. Having those difficult conversations, being able to have conversations in this room that are the reflection of conversations that need to be having across the country is a strength, not a weakness. And anyone pointing to that as a weakness does not get Canada. I don't know what that really means. 
And I don't know what or who it's really directed to, because, again, it's just a big flowery spiel of of whatever, um, I, 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 you know, a distraction from where he is. So, uh, again, I, I'm not sure what they can do moving forward. I'm not sure that he is the answer, but there's certainly lots and lots of chatter. And not only are you hearing it from people like me, but you've been hearing it from for an awfully long time. Uh, it's time for him to step aside and give his party a fighting chance. Uh, the once, you know, left of center, great liberal party is veered way off the left into socialism in its partnership with the NDP. And, and he just does not seem to get the average Canadian, what he always calls the middle class. He uses it all the time. He used to have a middle class minister to explain to him what it was. I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, if he's going to give uh, the once great left of center liberal party any sort of fighting chance, uh, I think he's got between now and Easter in order to uh, to get that done. So we'll see what happens uh, as we move forward with all of this. But um, I don't know. Uh, it's like the kid in the playground, the one that yells the loudest, gets the most attention for a while anyway, until everyone else realizes there's not much being said. Uh, so we'll obviously wait for that. Uh, interesting uh, stories going on locally. McMaster residents at 10 Bay, and this is a brand new building, beautiful building, and it's, they got water issues. And you've heard about it. Uh, it's been on the news and such. But um, what about the students and what happens moving forward? We're going to talk about that. Also, something we touched on yesterday, a staff report says that uh, a contracted a private operator and not the city should be running LRT. We'll talk about that with Eric Tuck, the president of the Transit Union Local 107 uh, coming up this hour as well. So that and uh, non-for-profit uh, housing in Stony Creek and there's support and there is not. It's all coming up. You know, if you've been following the news and all, I mean, this has been in the in the news for quite a while now, a few weeks anyway. And and my first reaction is, how does this happen when it's like a brand new build? Uh, it, it just seems very odd. McMaster residents at 10 Bay will be moving into a hotel while the school figures out what is happening with the water. And to talk more about all of this, Elliot Goodell Ugaldi is with us, graduate research and teaching assistant, Department of Political Science, McMaster University, and here now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? So far, so good. Elliot, this is a, a bizarre situation. But before I even ask you, uh, you know, to tell your story and what the student experience here is, um, are you surprised this is going on in this building, in a brand new building? Um, I'm surprised this is going on in the global north, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> um, the sort of dilapidation is not what we expect, uh, especially from um, McMaster, which is Hamilton's biggest employer. So tell us your story as a student, your experience, when this all started, when you noticed something wasn't right. Uh, so when I moved in, they wouldn't initially let us in uh, for the first few hours because the elevator wasn't built yet. Um, since then, there's been a number of issues. It took a long time for us to actually get washing machines. We've had bug infestations. Uh, we've had perpetual construction noise. Uh, we've had one tenant hospitalized as a consequence of the tainted water supply. Um, the university has failed to release um, the findings of the water supplies of the, the various water tests that they keep failing. Um, it's been quite atrocious. So, um, obviously, students being moved in before the building is finished, but 
I don't know if that explains what the water situation is. So, um, what is your experience with the water, and 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 how have you dealt with this? Give us give us the story. Um, so at this point, um, the university is deciding to move us out temporarily into hotels um, because of the water situation. Um, but it has been quite bad. We have tenants complaining about rashes. Uh, we have a number of people who have gotten extremely sick uh, from drinking the water. Uh, like I stated prior, uh, there was one tenant who had been hospitalized. They are now back in the building on antibiotics. Um, yeah. Is there any been any explanation or any story, anything to to suggest why this is happening, Elliot? Have they offered you any any thoughts there? Uh, there hasn't been. Uh, there was one communal town hall um, that we, at the start of moving in, we all banded together and we established a tenant solidarity working group uh, using the infrastructure from CP3906, which represents the teaching assistants here at McMaster, uh, considering that the vast majority of tenants are teaching assistants. Um, but it has been quite frustrating because McMaster's university serves as both our employer, our educator, and our landlord. So the leverage they have over us is significant. Um, and as such, we're planning uh, a physical demonstration actually this Sunday uh, outside the building. So d- d- are you confident they even know what they're looking for? Um, no. They have refused to pro- provide us, um, the Tenant Solidarity Working Group, or the media, um, uh, the, the results of any of the, of the water sample findings. And so tell us what the water's like. And is it been? It, has it gotten any better? Has it gotten any worse? Tell us about the water. I mean, I, I, none of us use it. Like it's, it, it. We just don't touch it. So I yeah. can't tell you in regards to taste or coloration or anything. I haven't turned my tap on since I've been there. And the residents that have, um, for whatever reason, uh, sometimes if they have uh, a guest over who's unaware of the situation, they end up uh, getting incredibly sick. So, what do you do about showering and that sort of thing? Um, a lot of tenants refuse to shower here. Uh, the ones that are fortunate enough to have uh, family and friends around um, are able to go to uh, their places to shower. Uh, for myself, I try to make my showers as quick as I can. Um, yeah. We have uh, documented uh, lesions and rashes uh, from various tenants. So when you're it's standing in the shower, amount. Elliot, when you're standing in the shower, Elliot, like, what do you notice? Do you, can you tell by the smell, the appearance? Uh, for me personally, it's just murky. Yeah. Um, and from that on, the, you certainly don't want to uh, certainly don't want to taste it. So uh, now, in the process of moving you out uh, for a week or so, and that's to put in filtration. I mean, does this is this to get at the source of the problem, or just to treat the problem? So we we have no idea what the problem is to begin with, and yeah. um, honestly, I'm not confident that the university knows either. Uh, at the town hall, one of our members had uh, inquired as to whether this would definitively resolve the problem, and uh, management had explained that they had no clue, essentially. Um, yeah, so it, it is quite the predicament. Um, have, have all of your communicate? Have all your communications, Elliot, been to McMaster, or is the city involved in this, or the developer, or the builder? Uh, the developer has not responded to any of our communications, and the university refuses to meet with us in our capacity as uh, a solidarity working group. Um, so uh, you're now, out. F- m- 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 most of our communication with the university 
uh, is actually through the media, um, which we don't find appropriate. So you are out for the first week of February, uh, and then you go back. Is there a start and end date to this? Uh, supposedly for six days, uh, but again, that's dependent on whether or not they actually resolve the problem. Um, mm. At this point in time, um, there's a great deal of uncertainty. And uh, you ha- you talked about a demonstration earlier. Give that a, a plug. Tell us what that's about. Correct. So um, outside of the building, it's the great, big, brand new, still under construction building uh, downtown on 10 Bay Street South, uh, downtown Hamilton. We're going to be having a demonstration this Sunday. Uh, we invite anyone to come out, um, any other tenants unions, anybody who wants to come out and support us. Um, bring your flags, bring your friends, bring your families. Uh, it starts at 10 a.m. We'll be going all day. All right, Elliot. Thanks for the time. Good luck. Well, thank you. Elliot Goodell Ugaldi is with us, graduate research and teaching assistant, Department of Political Science, McMaster University, McMaster residence at 10 Bay, uh, moving to a hotel for six days. This school tries to uh, fix the situation in regard to uh, the water, which, again, the thing that stuns me, and you certainly hear of, you know, the obviously aging infrastructure in Hamilton because it is such a old and historic city. But this is a brand new build, so it's kind of bizarre that uh, that students are doing this and are having to live through this, and uh, that, that that more isn't being done. Well, I guess it is because we're going to try to find out over the course of the first week of February. But uh, bizarre scenario, considering a new build in all. We'll be monitoring this. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. A city staff report that said a contracted private operator and not the city of Hamilton should run the LRT for the first ten years uh, with the right to step in afterwards. Uh, obviously, there's opposition from that. Uh, this apparently is the way that KW is doing it at this point. Let's bring in Eric Tuck, President, Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, and with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Yes, thank you. So, yeah, we heard or saw, uh, or you know, maybe not all of us, but certainly you would have uh, seen more most of this report. What stands out in it for you? Uh, how do you react to it? So one of the things that, that stands out for me is the uh, when you look at the options that are available, the four options, uh, option two and option four uh, are very comparable. There, I think there's a one-point difference in the overall evaluation. Option two is fully privatized and contracted out, and option four is to bring the operations in, in-house, uh, which I believe is the better option out of the four that are available. And one of the reasons I say this is because if you think about it, uh, Hamilton taxpayers are going to be the biggest investors in this project. Uh, when you, you look at the $3.2 billion that's being invested through the province and through the federal government, uh, and then the ongoing operations and maintenance costs, that will fall to the local taxpayer. Uh, and for that reason, I want to make sure that we get the best return on our investment. Uh, I, from what I saw of this, and obviously you've seen more of this report than I have, uh, the, the main reason for this was cost. So as something that is uh, at the expense of the taxpayer when it is all up and running and such, um, isn't it responsible to them to give it uh, not only the good service, but to do it you know, within budget and, and uh, as, as efficiently as possible? So I've read through the report. I don't see a lot of reference to cost. What I see reference to is risk and liability, uh, which is where the uh, second option slightly edges out option four. 
but again, I have to remind you that nowhere in this report do they factor in safety. Uh, and if you look at the safety record of Hamilton Street Railway, 150 years of operating safe, reliable, and affordable transit in this city. Uh, you know, uh, I know that a lot of uh, uh, the committee members have looked at the Kitchener model, uh, but you got to remember, Kitchener did not have an in-house transit system uh, with a record that we have for 150 years of service and reliability. Uh, I certainly appreciate what you're saying around uh, safety, Eric, but wouldn't uh, any person, any organization, any department, whether it's in-house, out-house, public, private, would they not all have to apply, you know, or, or meet the same safety requirements? I mean, usually with with travel transit, that's that's a pretty top priority, if not the, the, the biggest. You would think it would be, and yet in the scoring and, and the evaluation process, safety has not entered into that evaluation. Uh, and I will point out. No, but I, I understand. I understand that safety isn't in the equation. And I guess my point is, it's not in the equation because everybody would have to, you know, keep the same standard of safety. There's an expectation there, and that has to be followed no matter who's running it. So, so you look at the model that was used in Ottawa, which uh, is most comparable to the the number two model. Um, you know, they've had two two derailments in a number of. Uh, uh, extensive time, uh, downtime since that uh, system's been put in place. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have a, a gold star brand here in HSR uh, Transit for 150 years. Why would you, for a one point difference, uh, look at going to a privatized system where you have absolutely no control, no accountability, uh, and no, no answers if something does go wrong? So how how are you going to move this forward, Eric? Uh, where does this go from here? So this is a, an internal staff report, which was uh, brought forward by the LRT office, uh, which, by the way, was funded with the LRT money provided by Metrolinx. Uh, and the staff that were hired were hired because of their experience in working with Metrolinx. Uh, so their, their recommendations, I'm sure, take into consideration uh, the ideals of Metrolinx, which prefers a fully uh, a model which is fully privatized and, and outsourced. I'm suggesting that we look at actually a fifth option where the operation and maintenance is brought in-house uh, and is operated by a, uh, a, the, a, an entity that has a proven track record for both maintenance and for uh, delivering affordable, safe, reliable transit, and that's through our own HSR. Uh, it's not always cheaper to privatize and to outsource. You got to remember, we've had that experience with the water not too long ago, where we 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 put that over to a private contractor and then we brought it back in house. We've done, uh, you know, you look at the debate right now around uh, the Dart service and the talk about bringing that back in house, and that's run by a not for profit organization. Uh, so you really got to look at the, the fact anytime you outsource or you privatize you are factoring in profit and return on investment for, uh, for those investors. And as I said, the biggest investor here is the taxpayers, and we need to make sure that we get a good return on our money. And part of that return is good union jobs that are going to provide decent wages, uh, decent benefits, and decent pensions so that, uh, you know, that they can provide long-term jobs and long-term stability for this city. 
So uh, obviously this report, um, not what you wanted to hear. How do you sell this? How do you how, how do you try to make your case and 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 get this? Uh, not that it's a sealed deal by any means, but uh, you know the the current uh, you know changing direction here. So so obviously this is a staff report going to the LR committee, which is a uh, committee made up of council members. And uh, I believe there is private uh, representation on that committee as well, or public representation on that committee as well. Uh, I'm hoping that we can delegate and get many uh, members of the public on board uh, to ensure that if we're going to have a train running through the center of our city, that it is the safest and the best option for for, uh, Hamilton and gives us the best return on our investment. So we're going to try and convince the committee and council to do just that. How are other cities doing this, handling this as their transit systems expand? So, so higher order transit uh, in uh, Ontario has followed uh, all th- all four of those options. Uh, there, yeah. you know, there's no one set option, uh, but there's there's never been an assessment on the fifth option, which is the one that we're really hoping for. Uh, you know, if I had to pick out of the four that are available, I would say number four is the option to pick. Um, but I truly believe we need to go back to Metrolinx and at least make the ask, uh, is there an opportunity here for a fifth option? And if there is, let's do a quick evaluation on that. And, and just to clarify that, what does the fish, fifth option include? What, would you, what, the what are the points? Op- the, the fifth option would mean that we are fully, uh, that the, it would be a private consortium that would design, build, and finance the operations with the operations and the maintenance ongoing day-to-day maintenance being brought in-house and op- and done through uh, HSR, uh, as I said, which has a proven track record, 150 years. All right, Eric Tuck, President, Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much, Scott. You too. Obviously, we know where housing is. Uh, my goodness, there's a cap on student uh, international students because the housing crisis is the way that it is. Uh, we're seeing spikes in emergency room uh, admissions again because people don't have doctors, too many population, too much population chasing too few services. Uh, and, you know, so we're trying to get stuff built in, out, up, down, whatever. And there are concerns about a nonprofit housing project being placed in downtown Stony Creek without uh, enough consultation. And to talk more about all of this, Matthew Trombetta is with us, local business owner in downtown Stony Creek, and started a change.org petition and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. How are you, Scott? So far, so good. Uh, first, tell us about your business, Matthew. Yeah, so I'm with uh, Titan Mortgage Group. We're in downtown Stony Creek. We're a local business in this area. And uh, we recently found out we went to a affordable housing meeting that Matt Francis held uh, at the Legion last week. And we found out that they're proposing two buildings, okay, Uh, both on Lake Avenue in downtown Stony Creek. There's going to be 67 units with only eight parking spots. And continue with, so that's, that's what your, uh, that's your main concern? So one of, one of the biggest concerns we have in downtown Stony Creek is parking. Uh, uh, so so one of one of the issues we have in in Stony Creek is we we do have a parking lot, but the thing is, is that parking lot is constantly overfilled with restaurants like the medical building, uh, the village restaurant, 
across the street. Uh, we have parking for for the businesses around in this area as well. And the biggest issue is that even today, say for instance, I was just walking down the street. I looked around at the parking lot and I'm seeing people are parking illegally in spots. There's there's street parking that you know you can't park mm-hmm. in, but people are parking in because there's so much overfill from these from this parking lot. And so, uh, is is that the main concern, Matthew? Because parking seems like that could be an easy solution by, for example, putting underground parking in these buildings. And you know what? That's one thing that we're not opposed to. But the thing is, is to put that as a condition, like say, for instance, a parking garage, some type of parking. Uh, like a garage or whether it's like a two, three story parking Mm -hmm. garage. Like these are stuff that we said to that we're not opposed to, but again, it's something to fix the congestion in the area, the lack of services that downtown Stoner Creek has and that we've been advocating for years. Um, This is, this is something that we, we lack. Right. And we really want to keep that the heritage of downtown Stoner Creek um, and we, we want to stay true to the old town feel that we are. Uh, who have you taken your concerns to, Matthew? Who, who have you discussed this with? So we've discussed this with uh, one of the counselors there, Matt Francis, uh, and he's been great with trying to help out uh, in, in our area. We've also discussed this with uh, a couple other uh, political figures as well, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep staying in touch with them. The thing is, is that I think the biggest issue is that we need to have conditions when we go to present this at council. The thing is, is people think that uh, housing won't be put in the backyard. I'm not against affordable housing. I think that the location itself is not a great location. So the thing is, is you have to look at our area and where we're at and the congestion and things that, that, that make up our area. And it wouldn't make sense to have a high, uh, you know, such a high unit count with only eight parking spots. So um, where does this go from here? Because again, parking seems like that's an issue that can be pretty easily rectified. Uh, are you concerned that there hasn't been enough uh, consultation here? When are you or can you meet to discuss these things? Yeah, so there, there hasn't been a lot of consultation in regards to um, the city. They actually proposed this uh, two years back without telling anybody in the area. Uh, Matt Francis, he's, he's a great counselor of our area. When he found out about this, he told us right away, and uh, hence the reason why we had the meeting last week. So I think the biggest thing is what our petition want, like what we want here, is we want conditions on what's going to be happening. Um, and you know what? We need to start understanding what, like, what is it that the city wants to propose and have set plans because they're just proposing it, but we want actual plans and see what, what's going on. And I think that a uh, majority of the advocates of, in the area, they don't want this, whether it's a lack of, of, uh, of services in our area, you know, they're destroying, they've destroyed our schools. They've uh, to, to put parks and, and um, there's just a lack of services. There's a lack of uh, uh, 
of traffic control, congestion in the area. Um, there's there's a lack of parking. Like I think that we need to really sit down at this meeting and understand how we're going to, you know, go about this and what conditions we want the city to come back to us with. Uh, I think that's a that's a plan that most people can get behind. Uh, there's also- Just to play devil's advocate here, Matthew, what would you say to those that would say, you know, this sounds a bit like NIMBYism? I'm sorry, what was that? What would you say to those that would that would listen to the story and say, you know, that sounds a bit like NIMBYism, not in my Nimb- backyard? I know. And you know what? The thing is, is you have to look at um, NIMBYism. Uh, it doesn't really make sense in the sense that we are not saying that we don't want it in our backyard, but you have to look at our area and how the traffic flow works. Like we like, say, for instance, Eastgate would be considered in our backyard. It's right around the corner. But I think yeah, that yeah. would be a project that would be considered actual. Like, there's a lot of planning behind it. That's something that I could get behind, right? Right. But I look at projects like these where the city just wants to slap up 67 units without really understanding truly what's going on around the area. And and tell me one time if if the city can come down here and actually take a look at Stony Creek the way that our business owners look at it every single day, they'll start to realize the significant amount of problems that, we, that we've been advocating for years. And I think this is just, again, uh, another... Mm. Matthew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah. We're out of it. Matthew Trombetta with his local business owner, downtown Stony Creek, started a change.org petition in regard to a nonprofit housing unit uh, near downtown Stony Creek off of Lake Avenue without proper consultation. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, What is going on south of the border, specifically with the Republican Party and their primaries going on? Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. All right, we've got you back. Uh, so uh, many thought that once New Hampshire was over and if Trump won that, that Nikki Haley would be off and and that would be that. Why is she still in the race? Yeah, so essentially what, 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 she's staying in the race because she thinks that there's a part of the electorate that she can get. And most of the pundits who have said this, Donald Trump uh, appeals to a section of the Republican Party, but he doesn't appeal to the moderates. He doesn't appeal uh, to the people who are not as far right as the MAGA crowd. Uh, and she thinks that she has a chance. Look, he's seething over the fact that she's still in the race. We heard that during his uh, during his victory speech uh, on Tuesday night. And now with comments that he's going to try to go after her donors, um, you know, this this is essentially the Republican Party led by Donald Trump attacking somebody uh, who refuses to to essentially bow down. Obviously, she's still in it, too, Reggie, because she's still raising funds. Is that accurate? Sure, she is raising funds. And in fact, she raised more than a million dollars in funds uh, in the 24 hours after she came in second place. Remember, Donald Trump is trying to put this as she came in last place. It's only a two-person race right now, and her margins uh, of a loss were not as severe as some of the polls and as Donald Trump's campaign had been looking for. So he sees her as a threat, and she's going to use this opportunity to go after some donors. She's already lost a couple of them in the last couple of days, and that's nothing to be uh, uh, you know, unexpected 
especially as she, she heads into South Carolina. But ultimately, if she can make money, if she can fundraise off the fact that she's not doing as bad as Donald Trump wanted her to, um, you know, she feels that she has a viable path forward, even though the math isn't in her favor. Uh, is is this perhaps a Republican Party um, hiding, uh, too scared to speak up and waiting for somebody to lead? And when the momentum shifts, so will they? I mean, it's possible. I mean, look, quietly and behind closed doors, without Trump there, the Republican Party will say it might be difficult for Trump to win against Joe Biden in a general election. Yes, he is getting all of the support during a primary race. But again, that caters to one section of the Republican Party. Um, you know, unless somebody is actually willing to speak up, which nobody will, the endorsements behind Donald Trump are coming in fast and furious. Um, this is going to be where the Republican Party wants Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. Conversely, it's going to be exactly what Democrats want in that it will be uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, so what about her argument she was making um, that, you know, uh, we've, we, we've got to be doing something different. We need change other than these two old guys referring to both parties. Well, I mean, look, again, uh, it's speaking to a moderate part. Uh, of uh, of the Republican Party, it's speaking to those you know undeclared voters uh, that came out in droves in in a state like New Hampshire to say that this is not the direction that we want this country to go in. And look, there are some Democrats who will arguably say uh, Joe Biden is not the candidate that we want, but unfortunately, it's the candidate that we have. And I actually talked to um, you know a number of Haley supporters at a Haley event uh, in a small town in New Hampshire who said if it's not Haley that's going to be on the ticket later this year, that they will cast their vote as Republicans for Joe Biden. I think that we can move beyond this question mm. of, is age a factor here, when there are just so many people who say Trump might actually be the factor. Wow. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A super massive leak. Uh, the the mother of all breaches. Sheesh, I'm running for my life. What does that all mean? Experts are warning about the safety of digital data after uh, a large compromise. Carmi Levy with this technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Great to be here with you. So, Carmi, the mother of all breaches. Oh, my God. It sounds like there's a tidal wave coming. Uh, it is pretty bad. The numbers are scary. They're, the researchers are saying they're from a, these or, two organizations, Cyber News and Security Discovery. And they're saying that they found evidence of leaked data from a number of sources that you and I and all of our listeners probably use all the time. LinkedIn, uh, X, Dropbox, Adobe, uh, Telegram. Uh, and uh, they're saying 26 billion records in all uh, have been exposed, uh, and which would make it, if if you know, it bears out, uh, probably the largest breach in history. And they're they're saying that it looks like it's data that has been consolidated from a number of other breaches in the past. And basically, what the cyber criminals are doing is they're sort of putting it all together into one super database, which you know makes it easier for them to uh, you know create very comprehensive profiles on you and me. So. Uh, if, for example, our personal data was included in more than one breach, 
by putting it all together, they get to create a very detailed picture of who we are, uh, of all of the various pieces of data attached to our persona, which of course gives them a very powerful tool when they want to launch additional attacks, identity theft attacks, financial fraud, things like that against us in future. It's a very scary escalation in a story that we've been following for years. Uh, it sounds like the AI of data breach. Yes, <laughs> it really is, and and like the AI way you talked about it, assembling how they how it's assembling all of this from different sources and bringing it together, it, it it reeks of AI. It absolutely does, because I think we'd be naive to think that cyber criminals aren't using AI to uh, identify correlations between the data to scale up their efforts uh, and to you know essentially allow them to fight outside their weight class and cause more damage with a similar uh, investment of you know time and energy. Uh, cyber criminals are are all about uh, you know causing the most damage with the minimum investment, and that's what this is all about. And AI tools, like it or not, are in the hands of these these individuals, uh, and increasingly they are being paid by state sponsored. No no evidence at this point that this is state sponsored, but again, we have to assume that's a possibility. Uh, and certainly, AI allows them to scale up their malevolent operations uh, better faster, uh, more broadly than would otherwise be the case. And so when we talk about what are the threats from AI, everyone's talking about, well, the extinction of humankind uh, and, and all that. But the reality is the more immediate risks to all of us are in cases like this, where cyber criminals using artificial intelligence are essentially growing their threat faster than we can protect ourselves from it. So uh, this is different from other attacks in the sense that this is pooling information from various sources, which makes it even the information more valuable. Exactly. So it's the same threat that we've always known, just at a bigger yeah. scale. Uh, and it reinforces why it's so important for you and I to be looking at our own personal behaviors and asking ourselves if, if we're doing everything that we can to protect, protect ourselves. So in many cases, a lot of people are using the same passwords that they used when they were in high school, uh, and they haven't changed them in years. How did you find that out, Carmi? I'm, are you breaching me? <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll just be our secret and you know however many thousands there of people are listening to us now but um you know the, the the reality is we can slam the door on cyber criminals just by merely changing our passwords but most of us are still not getting the message it's almost like drinking and driving we know that it's bad for us but we still aren't making that change to our behaviors and so if we didn't reuse passwords there would be no threat or at least lesser of a threat uh, also use things like multi-factor authentication or dual factor yeah. authentication 2fa or MFA. And what those do is even if there's, if your password is included in all of this data, uh, so they might be able to then use a credential stuffing attack to sign into say your, your, your email account, um, they're going to run smack into uh, a second factor as well. And so even though they've broken the password, they won't have that other layer. So having that extra lock on the door, so to speak, can go a long way toward ensuring, uh, not that we won't be attacked at all because we will be, but toward ensuring that they stay on the outside and we stay safe that's really the key we can you know tweak a couple of security settings and go a long way toward reducing that risk profile all right so uh we've seen great changes in this especially at the corporate level any of us that uh you know have computers that are that are uh, uh work owned uh, operated and such uh, especially if you're working remotely or or such especially in a post-pandemic world you we got into multi-layers of authentication and this sort of stuff so in, in many situations with your your work uh computers and such you have to do all of that you have to change your password every so many months they make 
make you do it. Is that, are people taking that and thinking, well, maybe I should do it in my personal stuff too. Are they taking that, you know, behavior that we're all being taught because they're, you know, they certainly have lots of, of modules and things you have to go through, uh, with any workplace to make sure that you are not breaching any sort of, uh, any sort of security. So are, are we taking that to our personal lives at all? Oh, I wish that were the case, Scott, because if if that were the case, then we really wouldn't be seeing stories like this. But yeah. what, what ends up happening is uh, people go to work uh, either in, in the office or hybrid or remotely, and they run into these additional security layers. And rather than seeing them as, oh, this is my company trying to keep us safe, they see it as 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 an annoyance. They see it Another as a pain, it's, yeah. Exactly. I have to jump through additional hoops in order to get to it. And the way companies implement these additional layers of security is often not as convenient as it should be. They don't do a good job of understanding the impact on end users uh, and their productivity. So in many cases, you spend half an hour trying to get through security so you can get your work done, which takes you five minutes. And so, uh, you know, I think we have a ways to go toward ensuring that we have that balance so that we are secure, but we are also still able to get work done and it's convenient to do so. And because of that, many of us, when we sort of shift into our personal lives, we don't want to add those layers of security because we remember Mm. how annoying they were at the office. Uh, That needs to change as well. All right, here we go. Uh, The simple tips, Carmi, changing your password, an obvious one. What else? Uh, start monitoring your inboxes very carefully because in many cases, social engineering, so phishing emails, text messages, uh, direct messages in social media, scam calls uh, to get you to do something, make it look like it's coming from your boss or your bank or uh, your insurance company, your kid's school. Uh, so just yeah. because it hits your inbox doesn't mean that you should immediately respond to it. We should be doing additional layers of due diligence, leaning in very closely to make sure, did that email really come from my boss? Is my kids school really sending me that note did that uh, phone call that robocall that i got it sounded like it came from pierre poliev is that really him probably not so Mm. uh, you know take the time to look at and lean into these assets because in many cases especially with ai being used to spoof legitimate sources uh, in many cases it isn't real and if you click on that link you will be in a world of trouble resist the urge to answer everything back out of the message and contact them directly instead if you're concerned risk don't react to everything that's the urge i mean people just ding 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 they just want to get plugged in asap we're afraid of saying no or we're afraid of not responding and we're afraid of being called out on it we're being called rude you know you didn't answer my email um but i would rather be called rude uh once than to have to recover from a ransomware attack which is really what we're facing here so let's balance that off uh and let's let's sort of recognize that our inbox can be a very dangerous place and we sort of have to start treating every email and every message with cynicism first. Uh, and I know it's not really a Canadian way of being, but we've got to change. Much like we do in the workplace. Carmi Levy, technology yeah. analyst and journalist, uh, massive leak. Uh, again, the basic stuff, change your passwords, keep yourself protected. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. We've certainly been following the story for a while and, of course, have seen the fallout with Hockey Canada, changes, sponsorships, uh, that sort of thing. Now five members of the 2018 World Junior Team are facing sexual assault charges, this announced yesterday. To talk more about all this, Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, and here now. Ari, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. To you, too. Great to be on with you. So your thoughts on this, uh, we've certainly have heard a lot about this issue. Why is this happening now? How difficult or uh, challenge is it to get to this point? 
So I'll give you a real answer why it's happening. Two different concepts. One, politics. Two, Gian Gomeshi. Hmm. You might say, why those two bizarre words? Let's start with the politics. In 2018, when this allegation came to light, the police force with a dedicated sexual assault team investigated it and decided they did not have grounds to lay any charge. That's important. Now, you're going to hear in the next few weeks, well, maybe the young lady wasn't as cooperative as she should have been. But remember, let's take your listeners back two years. Much of this is caught on videotape, okay? And that videotape had been seen. So the political pressure here, and you'll remember, the Hockey Canada got sued. And when they got sued by this young woman, they paid her a settlement. And you'll remember this went right to Parliament, mm -hmm. that everybody was all a Twitter and a gag that Hockey Canada would have paid this lawsuit off and using Hockey Canada funds. And you'll remember, rather than fixing the economy, crime, immigration, our politicians were busy bellyaching at parliamentary committees about this. As a result of that political pressure, Scott, because this is a, it's a part of the story that cannot be ignored, the police chief came out and said, well, look, we hear what everybody's saying. We know the politics of it. We're going to look into this again. We've got some fresh investigative avenues. Get off of our back. We'll go look at this again, get off of our back. Lo and behold, the charges we're speaking of. And it read John Gomeshi, which is a very important part of Canadian criminal law when it comes to sex assault. The police, Scott, and most of your listeners would not know this. Prior to Gomeshi, police would listen to a story, listen to an allegation, and if they thought it was a dog's breakfast or not capable of succeeding in court, or nothing to it, or somebody with an axe to grind, they would say, we're not going to lay this charge. And sometimes it would be as simple as the defense lawyer is going to have his way with you or her way with you, okay? Mm -hmm. After Gomeshi, the Globe and Mail came out with a story called Unfounded, which showed that the police were using their discretion to not charge certain men with certain things. After that, the police came up with a blanket policy that they're going to charge everybody. If Scott Thompson is accused by any of his listeners, even if he hasn't met her, of sexual malfeasance, you're getting charged, Scott Thompson. So that should provide some insight to 2018 and 19 when these players were not charged. The political pressure comes. Maybe she's more cooperative because she's going to be cross-examined by five to eight of the most skilled lawyers in Canada. I, d I guess she's prepared to withstand that. And if what she's saying is true, more power to her. We should all support her. But you cannot take out the politics and the Gomeshi-like nature of this. And I think this is not going to end well in court uh, for a number of reasons for this young woman. Maybe Many people will say maybe you're wrong, but that's my guess. Uh, how does this happen if there was a settlement already? So that's one of the great questions, which is why now we're back into the politics. She goes to the police or the police get wind of this one or the other. They say, no, we don't even have reasonable grounds to even lay a charge here, which doesn't mean a conviction, Scott. Mm -hmm. When you charge somebody, it doesn't mean the police are saying, look, we can get past proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They just have a very light standard to charge. They said, no, we're not doing it. Then she sues. 
gets a big check from Hockey Canada for all the reasons you can figure out, which very rarely have to do with guilt or innocence, often has to do with making an allegation go away, pay less than you would pay in lawyers, no publicity. So she takes that check, and now we're back to the criminal realm, which I can assure you will be something that the defense lawyers of these players look at very, very carefully. And if there's a jury of their peers, there might be one or two jurors that have a problem with that, or there might be 12 jurors who say, who cares? She was assaulted. She got some money. We're still going to convict them. The story has not yet been written, but it is riddled, riddled with obstacles. And I uh, only got a few seconds left. What next? What happens now? So they're all on leave because everybody's pretending that, you know, they're not turning themselves in. They're being told they're going to be charged. They're all lawyering up, obviously. They will all show up at a police station. They will be released on what's called paper. They'll be given a, a return to court date a couple months from now. Their lawyers will all appear for them. Don't expect to see their faces at the courthouse until they have a trial. And in my view, these players at this point would be foolish to resolve. They should go to trial unless the evidence is so strikingly overwhelming that they and their lawyers decide there is a resolution in the cards. That's basically how this is going to play out. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, talking about five members of the 2018 World Junior Team facing sexual assault charges. As always, Ari, thank you for the time. Be well. Good to be with you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the uh, Prime Minister and the upper echelons of the uh, of the Liberal Party met in Montreal earlier uh, this week, and now he is meeting with the caucus. Uh, we've seen him uh, on a news uh, conference talking about moving forward and, and so on and so forth. But e- even more, it seems there is rumblings that are growing for a leadership change or at least some sort of review within the federal Liberal Party. To talk more about this, Sam Routley is with us, PhD candidate, Department of Political Science, Western University, and he here now sam thank you for the time i hope you're well yeah thanks uh thanks for having me so sam is this drum beating louder for a, a change at the top of the liberal party i mean there's definitely um some rumblings and, and discontent um but that's pretty standard uh for any government that is you know as unpopular uh as the uh, trudeau liberals currently are uh they are incredibly unpopular is this concern warranted i mean i think it's 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 often difficult to tell you know uh the, the difference between the the public discontent versus what's the level of discontent sort of going on behind the scenes uh because parties are typically very good at sort of keeping it on the down low but i mean the fact that you know these are starting to come out uh, means that if you're thinking about caucus, especially, there's certainly um, quite a lot of discontent. Um, you know, a lot of MPs are are hearing um, a lot of complaints. You know, a lot of uh, criticism from the ridings. Uh, they are they're really concerned about uh, being reelected in the next election. So it's certainly uh, putting a lot of pressure uh, on the leadership. What would be a trigger? Do you think, Sam? A trigger for the uh, for the to change leadership, leadership. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's that the thing? Because is, obviously, is, obviously, we've seen the polls what they are for like a year or the better part of a year, anyway. And many are saying, "How far do you go?" 
uh, and still give the you know the party a, a fighting chance, a, you know, a piece of runway before the next election. So, um, considering things where they are now, where do they have to go before this would be, um, you know, something they have to think about? Well, yeah, I mean, when when we're talking about leadership, um, it's entirely the prime minister's call um, in yeah. the sense that even if the party continues to get more unpopular, um, there's really no means by which the prime minister can be pushed out. Um, yeah. Leaders are incredibly powerful in Canada. Um, and as long as they want to stay in power, they'll stay in power. I mean, if, if they wind up losing the next election, um, things will obviously be different. But I mean, usually what, what tends to happen in the past, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the Mulroney case, for example, or even uh, Trudeau Sr., um, is that they tend to leave um, if, if they're not if they're not sure if they if it looks like they're not going to win the next election, certainly with Mulroney, right? They tend to leave, you know six months or so before the next election to sort of give their successor a chance to sort of rebuild or revamp the party image. Um, but it looks like the current prime minister is not sort of in the mood to do that or doesn't see that as sort of a necessary uh, course of action. And I mean, whether uh, that's because, you know, of, of, of the fact that they might see that there's perhaps a chance forward that, that, that if perhaps, the government manages to kind of change the story, right? They manage to sort of get back into, into onto this proactive kind of media uh, stance, then then they might have a path forward. Um, so the liberals don't have a mechanism in place to review a leader or change a leader. Similar, we saw with the conservatives with Aaron O'Toole, and that's how Pierre Polyev got in, uh, bumping Aaron O'Toole. Liberals don't have that kind of mechanism, do they? They they do for cases uh, they do after the election. So if if the party uh, loses the election, um, there's there's sort of and the and that leader decides to stay on. There is a uh, it, it does trigger a leadership review, um, and typically, generally, although there isn't an official number, I don't believe sixty six percent is generally kind of seen as the metric um, for a leader staying on. So I mean if if the Liberals were to go into the next election um, and lose it, um, and the Prime Minister were to, not the Prime Minister anymore, but but uh, right. Trudeau right. were to decide to stay on, uh, then then there would be a leadership review there. But I mean, up until the election happens, um, there's no, like I mentioned, right? There's no way really mm-hmm. uh, to remove a leader, even if even if the party is sort of dead set against them. And, and I mean, this has happened in the past. You have plenty of cases where um, a significant portion of the party is is wanting a new direction for, for leadership, you know, but the leader at that time is sort of staying on. So uh, many have said that um, now, if you're going to do this, you got to do this now in order to have enough runway. I think you said something like six months. So that would be six months before the fall of 2025 uh, that he has to step down. I've heard uh, reports to say saying uh, today saying he's got till maybe, um, you know, Easter of this year. And that's it. Is that enough runway? Six months? I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a more difficult question here because of course it's a minority government. Yeah. Um, 
and it and it depends on first of all whether or not um the the new democrats are sort of willing to maintain that coalition until it sort of maxes out which 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 isn't guaranteed um and the second is is that if the current prime minister were to step down right does that sort of change anything do the new democrats sort of detect a certain amount of weakness and and decide to to go forward to the next election or um you know to what extent are they sort of willing to uh work with um you know the prime minister's successor um is unclear which i mean might might support this idea mm. that even though the government is currently unpopular it's sort of ultimately in their interest to kind of keep that current uh leadership in place um and and sort of hedge their bets that way instead of um pursuing any sort of unpredictable uh changes Sam Ratley with us, PhD candidate, Department of Political Science, Western University, talking about the Liberal Party caucus retreat right now and chatter of the leadership. Sam, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me. We heard uh, a few weeks ago that Bad Boy, a uh, furniture outlet in Ontario that's uh, been around, well, since the days of uh, uh, former mayor of Toronto, Mel Lastman, they have, it appears, gone bankrupt. Uh, they were talking about it certainly a few weeks ago and uh, filed for protection, and it looked like they were going to or perhaps trying to uh, resettle some things. Doesn't look like that happened. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am very good, thank you. So, uh, are you surprised this happened? Are you surprised yes. they didn't uh, restructure in some way? Yes. Well, let's take you back in time. So, in November is when Bad Boy went to the court and said, look, we've got more debt than we can handle, and, and we need you to consider creditor protection. Now, the court thought about this and said, okay, we can give you creditor protection, but we can't give it to you forever, so you need to submit a proposal on how you're going to restructure your debt by January 23rd. In the meantime, the um, the court said we will allow you to start a liquidation sale to free up cash to do to so that you'll be able to build some kind of a fund in here. So over the last couple of months, there have been items for sale in the stores, liquidation items, uh, but we were holding our breath to see. And my best guess had been that when uh, uh, this proposal was going to come forward, Bad Boy was going to emerge as a much smaller company. So let's say it had twelve locations. Maybe it would be down to four locations, and there would, they would find a way out from all this. The, what happened on January 23rd, which is two days ago, is absolutely nothing. Not a piece of paper got filed. Mm. They didn't even attempt to file a, any kind of a proposal. And if you don't do that, the court leaves has no choice here but to say, well, since you're not responding anymore, mm. guess what? You're now bankrupt, and all of your assets are seized. All of your assets go to a liquidator, including, you know, office furniture and buildings, what have you, and you don't exist anymore. And that's why we say they're bankrupt. They just uh, are, are not going to exist anymore. Uh, we were driving along the 407 near Oshawa area recently and noticed a giant bad boy headquarters and warehouse that is literally just opened, uh, I guess, a few weeks, months ago, months ago, I guess. Yeah, and it's and it's now uh, where the headquarters were. They were actually starting to demolish it. Someone has purchased the property and has other plans for it, which is going to see a significant renovation or uh, revisiting of what that building is like. So that's going now. Here's the sad news. The really sad news at this moment: the company owes around fourteen and a half million dollars. Around fourteen and a half million dollars. No surprise 
They owe a couple million dollars to the Whirlpool Corporation. They owe nearly a million dollars to Samsung. Those would be suppliers of appliances to Bad Boy. But the bad news is the company took in four and a half million dollars of deposits from consumers who wanted furniture. Those people are now unsecured creditors of the company. So they can't get their money back. No one's going to hand them back their cash. They will get some of it back when this bankruptcy proceeding is finished, because, again, you, you sell off things to build up a fund, and then you use that fund to pay the creditors. But no one who deposited money with this company ever planned to be a creditor. And, and so wow. you now have a lot of really ordinary citizens who might get 50 cents on the dollar, 60 cents on the dollar, lose half of their deposit. Um, and that, that's a really sad situation. How did they succeed in the early days? What's different now? Well, uh, you know, I, I, it's a little glib of me to, to look back. I mean, Mel Lastman was quite the salesperson in his day, yeah. super salesperson. Yes, you're right. He eventually had a political career, but boy, was he clever. Now, his son, Blaine, who eventually took over the company, I just don't think he was cut from the same piece of cloth as his father. And then the second thing was the expansion. They went from having one location to two to four, and I think now it's around 12. And, and sometimes, you know, when you expand, you change the dynamics of an organization. And, and I, unfortunately, in my lifetime, too often I've seen this happen, that a company has gone from one location to 12, and then suddenly they have none because they just didn't have the capital or the demand to justify that big of an expansion plan. And so it does worry me when I see small companies expand perhaps a little too quickly and I think you put that together, plus, you know, the last few years with the higher interest rates, people cocooning at home, uh, not taking a chance. We're generally speaking pessimistic, so let's get a little more life out of that, out of that, uh, uh, whether it's refrigerator or, or couch or something like that before we buy mm-hmm. something new. It didn't take much of a downturn in consumer demand to send this company into bankruptcy. Uh, a very tough industry to crack. I mean, it's a pretty niche industry. They sort of went to the discount side of that. So I'm guessing competitors like the Brick and Leon's would would uh, certainly may eat them for lunch. Sure. Well, I don't know if I'd say eat them for lunch, but you're right. It is a tough market to crack. Now, we have some local companies, Goman's, for instance, yeah, yeah. based in Stony Creek. Uh, we've got Tepperman's, who entered entered this market a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. they seem to have gotten through this okay. In fact, and I hate to say it to you like this, but one advantage of a company like this closing is then you take and redistribute the demand to the other companies. It'll yeah. actually make the other ones healthier because they're not competing at quite the same level. But, it, you know, it's, it's an almost an intangible quality. How can you be uh, a favorite of many people for nearly 40 years and then all of a sudden, almost on a dime, fall out of favor with people? But it can happen, and that certainly is what happened here. Here's a classic example of a family business that was started and first generation went, went gangbusters. Then you talked about expansion and how things become more complicated. That being said, if you've got a business like this, um, you know, you obviously want to grow it. How do you avoid growing it too fast, running into problems like this, but then still remaining relevant and competitive and not staying the same for 25 years? Mm-hmm. Well, I, again, I don't want to make it sound like I have all the glib answers here, but Generally speaking, if you have to err, I would say err on the side of caution. In other words, even though you might have been able to open 12 locations, maybe you should have opened six, or maybe you should open one a year rather than three a year, and be absolutely certain that the foundation is firm. 
And when companies do that, then you know great things happen to them. But if you start over-expanding, you're growing too fast, sometimes you even begin to convince yourself, I've got to keep growing fast, or the right. whole thing's going to cave in. That's where you get into the trouble. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Bad boy is done. It looks like they are heading for bankruptcy. Marvin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. I will. Thank you. Scott Radley joining us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Got a neat column on fans, uh, his latest. And he is here now. Scott, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Want your reaction to uh, the news that's coming out regarding uh, World Juniors 2018 edition and five being charged? Yeah, well, yeah. And, you know, I, I talked about this off the top of the show, that it's, it's one of those stories that is really important uh, for a variety of reasons and not just because there's a potential that names that we know are involved. We don't know who those are yet, so we got to be really yeah. careful. Uh, but the, the, the reason this is an important story, I think is because uh, for a long time, people have had the opinion that if you are a sports star, if you're an entertainment star, if you are whatever, uh, political star, you can get away with stuff. And, you know, we've seen in recent years in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein and a few mm-hmm. others that. That is no longer really the case. Uh, this is not the same because it's not, you know, the biggest name NHL player of all time being caught in this, but you know, we've seen it in major league baseball with guys getting in trouble. These are, these are important stories. Now, as I said off the top though, and as I said yesterday on my show, this is going to be a story that we're going to talk about a lot going forward, but right now it's. What really has bothered me in the past couple of days about this is not the reporting. The reporting by the Globe and Mail and others has been terrific. It's social media, as it tends to want to do, has decided who the people are, which may or may not be correct. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. And has essentially convicted these people. Yeah. And there's plenty of time for that. I mean, February 5th, London police say they are going to have a press conference and you know what? I, I assume on that day they will announce because other people who are charged have their names made public. So I assume at that point we will know. I'm just, you know, this is, this is one of those stories, Scott, that is so toxic and for good reason. Like it's toxic because it's a toxic story behind the scenes that if your name gets attached to this wrongly, and you are someone who's got a career in the public eye. That's, that's horrendous. So we are going to cover this thing a huge amount. Let's just make sure we know what we're covering before we get to that. Uh, that's a good point. Um, and there's lots of factors here, uh, as well, including the fact that this had already been investigated. Police said nothing there. And then they relooked and said now that there is, and also a settlement was reached in this. So how that all affects this moving forward, uh, we're going to wait to see. How does Hockey Canada handle this now? Cause we've seen in the past with, you know, sponsors that have come and gone, some, you know, some have come back, some haven't, uh, how, how do they position this? And I'm glad you raise that because I had meant to, and I forgot in that just spiel a second ago, this is a big moment for hockey Canada, because assuming this goes the way that everybody thinks it is that five members of team Canada are going to be charged from 2018, 
and assuming that at least one of them decides to have a trial, says that they're not guilty, which I, I expect is probably going to be the case. Probably Hockey Canada's role in this and what it did or didn't do is going to come out. And that's going to be something that is either going to bail Hockey Canada out from some of the criticism that it's had in the past few years, if it turns out that it did what it was supposed to do, or it's going to put a really blinding laser-like focus on Hockey Canada for how did you cover this up? If that's the, if that's what happened, we, we're going to learn. And, and this, again, we talk about the importance of this. This is going to be something that I would expect every single sports organization, amateur, professional, whatever is going to be watching this going, oh man, we better put rules in. We better have plans that if this comes up in our spectrum, if this comes up in our world, we know what to do properly. Now that's not to say, I don't know yet, Scott, we don't know what exactly what Hockey Canada did or didn't do. And I'm saying this, yeah. this to me is kind of like body cameras on police, body cameras on police. Some people go, oh, look, put the cameras on police and you'll see all the wrongdoing that they do. It also will show all the times yeah. they're accused and they didn't Absolutely. do anything wrong. This yeah. could either be the perfect elixir for Hockey Canada to show yeah. they did everything right, or it could be really bad. Sunlight, the best disinfectant. Absolutely. All right. Who's on show tonight? Uh, we're going to be talking, there's a Toronto city councillor who has asked to delegate to Hamilton city hall about the LRT. And I'm assuming he, I don't even know what he wants to say to them. We're going to talk to him because this is a guy who represents a ward in Toronto that's had the Eglinton LRT fiasco. So I can guess what he's coming at. <laughs> I can guess. You might want to balance it with somebody from Kitchener. Uh, yeah, you know what we, well, we were talking yesterday about the LRT, uh, or the yeah. day before, but yeah, I, I mean, this is a really interesting one because the people in that ward, it's still going on. It's still a disaster. I'm going to be fascinated to hear what he is going to be telling counselors here to do, to prepare themselves, to not do. I have no idea what he's going to say, but I can't wait to hear it because I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, one way or the other. Yeah. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one comes from Steve. And it's on the issue of the HSR running the LRT. A more power, uh, a more powerful union for the HSR is going to be a uh, disruption during a municipal event like the Grey Cup just this past last fall. Uh, just what we need more objectionable operators hiding behind a union running the LRT. So says Steve. Uh, as ever, Steve, keep right except to pass. 